Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I have been looking forward to airing this episode for a long time. Over the last five to 10 years, interest in mental health has boomed. And with that, there's greater demand for therapists than ever. I've had several friends myself either consider moving into a career in mental health or even go back to school to get their degree and begin the process of becoming a therapist. On today's episode, I'm talking to five people who are either therapists or therapists in training to learn the lessons they wish they'd known when they started. If you're considering a career in mental health or are currently going to graduate school, or hey, if you're just interested in therapy and curious about how the sausage gets made, this one's for you. As a note, I've been working on this episode for a while, and a number of the interviews I did for it were recorded months ago. And this means that if you're watching on YouTube, the video quality is going to change a couple of times. And working on this project was a nice reminder of how far we've come with our AV quality. So in this episode, I'll be talking to Lori Gottlieb, a practicing therapist in Los Angeles and the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, Terry Real, a family therapist and the best-selling author of a number of books, including his most recent Us, Elizabeth Ferreira, a somatic therapist and also my partner, and finally, Taylor Banfield, a graduate student at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California, and a longtime friend of mine. We talked about so much during this episode, how they got into this line of work, dealing with making a career change, the traits that are valuable in a therapist, how to deal with difficult clients, and what they'd go back and do differently if they could do it all over again. But then there's one person I haven't named yet. You probably guessed it. I'm going to actually begin today's episode with a conversation with Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a longtime practicing clinical psychologist. He's a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. Here's my conversation with Rick. So dad, thanks for doing this with me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm thoroughly psyched about this topic. You're going to have to corral me because I could <laughs> I could speak at length about it. Um, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly about becoming a therapist. Yeah. As you know, the setup for this episode is that I'm going to kind of take on the role of being somebody who's considering becoming a therapist. Maybe yeah. I'm early on in my graduate school experience. Maybe I'm just playing around with the idea of doing some kind of work in mental health. I'll ask you some different questions and we'll kind of go from there. I'm sure I'll also provide some commentary because I just can't help myself, but that's mostly going to be the conceit. Does that sound good? Sounds great. All right. Awesome. So let's say that they start by asking you something along the lines of, I'm interested in this, but I don't really have a good sense, in part because of confidentiality reasons, what being a therapist is actually like on a day-to-day basis. So could you explain that to me? It's like having multiple deep, meaningful conversations with people each day that are aimed at helping them. Now, you have to have the temperament for it, and uh, which includes a fair amount of restraint, because when you're in the therapeutic room, uh, you're there for them. And so the normal back and forth in, in interactions in which we're telling our story and giving our infinite wisdom and blathering on, you know, at some length. Nope, can't do that. There's something fundamentally kind of abstemious about it, kind of priestly Mm. in a way. Uh, Yes, they're different styles, but at bottom, if you're comfortable with that and you like helping people and you like entering into the murky depths of the mind 
And you are someone who is sort of endlessly fascinated with all the twists and turns in the human psyche. It's a fantastic profession. It's mm. a noble profession. You know, Freud called it the impossible profession. It's not, actually. A lot of research shows that, on average, people get a lot out of psychotherapy, so you can feel successful. Yes, there are clients that are grappling with stuff that seems pretty intractable. And yes, sometimes you've got a client who says, help me, help me, don't help me. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> not explicitly, unfortunately, usually, but that's actually what they're communicating. But on the whole, it's a wonderful way to make a living. I never woke up in the morning forest, ever, thinking, darn, I got to go do therapy with people today. You know, yeah. I've had other jobs where I kind of thought, oh, I got to go to the office today, or oh, I got to go to the factory today. But never have I ever regretted a day of work as a therapist. What do you think some of the key traits are in good therapists, people who might be considering doing this? That's great. Basically, uh, there's been a lot of research, and, and you know this research pretty well yourself, about so-called therapeutic efficacy, what, what makes a difference. And I, I hearken back to a summary of a summary about this that I read back in the 70s, I think, that still seems pretty true today. The Stone Age. The two, what? <laughs> I was joking. I said the Stone Age. Oh, the Stone Age. Yeah, the 70s, before the wheel. <laughs> what the book said, and it's, it's totally run true for me, is that these two factors— really shape a lot of therapeutic outcome, the motivation of the client and the overall level of functioning of the therapist themselves. Now, different things go into the motivation of the client and the expression of the level of functioning of the therapist, but those, those are real. And so qualities, I think, in a good therapist is a lot of familiarity and comfort with your own mind by which I mm -hmm. don't mean just intellect, but the full mess of your own psyche, the layers, the depths, the nonverbal parts. A lot of what therapy is about is helping people come to terms with and become more integrated around parts of themselves or experiences that they push away. And if, if you're also uncomfortable with that part of yourself or pushing it away yourself, you're going to be a lot less able to help your client. So you don't have to be perfect. One of the benefits of the career as a therapist is that it pulls you into your own personal growth process. You can't help it. Things you learn in graduate school, you apply to yourself. Things you learn with your clients, you apply to yourself. But still, it, it really helps to be someone who's pretty comfortable in your own skin. Also, someone who's able to sustain a mindful attention to another person, minute after minute, session after session. You have to be somebody who is interested in other people, endlessly interested in other people, and also someone who can kind of regulate your own impulses to fix people, you know, to advise them and maybe because their distress makes you uncomfortable. You know, you're, you're here to help people and there, you know, there's a range of therapeutic interventions or therapeutic styles. At one end, you have extremely restrained modes like psychoanalysis or Rogerian client-centered therapy or some of the recent mindfulness-centered or acceptance-centered approaches that are very, kind of very just be present with and non-interfering, then you have much more active forms. And I'm probably in the middle of that spectrum personally as a therapist. But in general, you have to be able to tolerate a certain amount of ambiguity and distress and the slowness sometimes 
of helping people to to change their mind for the better. So yeah, those are some of the qualities. Looking at the distress tolerance part of this for a second, one of the big parts of being a therapist, working in almost any environment where you're doing therapy, and your background is in individual clinical practice, you worked with kids and families and a lot of individuals. And there are other people, like I have a friend who does crisis response work for Sonoma County, very different kind of providing uh, therapeutic services. But for you, a good chunk of the job involved sitting with somebody who's having a pretty bad day or a lot longer than a bad day. And that can take a real toll on a person over time. What was that like for you? There is empathic burnout. I don't think there's compassion burnout. Hmm. Key distinction, backed by some research, in part because if we're rested in compassion, if we're rested in a benevolence, you know, a goodwill, a kindness, I think Carl Rogers called it unconditional positive regard. That's authentic. You're just rested in that. That has a protective influence, including neurobiologically with reward molecules like natural opioids that are released when you're in touch with the sweet aspect of while being present with the bitter, the bittersweet together, but being aware genuinely of the sweet. That helps you sustain the process. That's one. Um, It also helps, I think, to be a person who, for different reasons, has decent psychological boundaries. And, and even a temperament. Like by temperament, I'm pretty independent and stubborn and self-directed. Um, and also I grew up in a very with parents who were very loving and kind of invasive and controlling. So I, I learned to put up boundaries kind of early on. So I'm able to do that. Some people are much more permeable in their temperament. And they need to, as therapists, work on not being so um I was going to use the word invaded, but I don't mean it in that negative sense, but so affected, you know, by others. And there are things you can do as a therapist so you're not so affected, so you're present with them. Physicians, healthcare workers need to do the same thing when they work with really difficult situations. You have to be able to be caring and present with your heart open and yet not exhausted by the end of the day and Mm. not burdened when you go home to your family, you know, at the end of the day. So- I've learned somewhat to do that. One detail that has really helped does go with a kind of a wisdom perspective in the traditions in which you you just start to recognize all phenomena as made of parts that are connected and changing. And so the person who appears in your in your office, there is a kind of wholeness to them, but also so many currents upstream in the river of time have manifested as whoosh whoosh, whoosh, what you're in the middle of right now. And that kind of big picture perspective, which includes some humility about your own limited capacity to change, you know, to you're one more current in that person's river, but you're not the whole river. And that's good to keep in mind. So that kind of perspective has also helped with not being flooded by the pain and distress of clients. Mm -hmm. And that said, There are people I've definitely worried about, I've gone home about. I tend to be especially affected by couples. Anything with regard to children really would get to, you know, would get to me. And I also learned that there's certain kinds of clients that are not so good for me, in part because I get really worried and concerned. So I've tended to not work with people who are actively suicidal. What is sitting with somebody actually like? when you're engaged in the practice of therapy oh. with them? Because we have all of these yeah. 
these pop culture images of you know person laying on the couch and the the psychoanalytic position behind them taking notes on the on the yeah. notepad or references from movies you know goodwill hunting has a a popular depiction of therapy in it these are often pretty pretty dramatized even though that one is you know maybe one of the better ones out there but yeah, still so. what is it actually like well i think it depends a little bit on the therapist and what your aims are so for myself, I tend to be oriented around people are coming to see me because something is hurting or not working or they want to, they want some kind of change for the better. Now, maybe that change for the better means accepting themselves as they are, but it's a, there's a delta. It's a change for the better. So I'm the, and they're there investing serious time and money. I want to accomplish a result. I'm there to accomplish things. So I tend to be toward the, we're here to accomplish things, end of the spectrum, even if what we're accomplishing is just a deep exploration of somebody's innards, you know, and mm. that itself is an end in itself. Okay, that's cool. So I'm pretty active. I'm active in my mind. I'm, I'm diagnostic. What's happening here and what would help? And fundamentally, what if it were, were more present in their mind would really help? So no surprise to you, I'm sure. I tend to be oriented around growing resources. So there's a, mm -hmm. there's a point, there's a purposefulness in coming to see me and I'm not there to screw around. <laughs> okay. On the other hand, there are therapists who are wonderful therapists and their explicit orientation is a much more receptive, less active stance. So for them, they're resting in a kind of field of presence. So for them, simply sustaining that quality of presence is what it's like for them predominantly to work with somebody. And I'm not saying one is better or worse. I'm just saying there's kind of a, a range of what it's like. I think another part of it is to appreciate that once you get past the initial kind of intake phase or getting to know you and there's the beginning of some trust, you're with the tender parts of a person. It's tender. It's scary. You're with someone who's stepping into their pain sometimes. You know, you're with someone who's exploring things that are scary to explore. You're with someone who knows they're being really vulnerable with another person who's not. So as a therapist, you know, you're not particularly vulnerable. What's that like? There's a power differential there. You know, it's it's deep and you're, you're with people who sometimes are stepping into or opening doors inside that they don't have control over. It's pretty, it's real. And one of the nice things about it too, and particularly in a kind of a culture, I think America tends to be this way, where people are pretty focused on their image, their personas, their, you know, their masks, and it's kind of a perf the performance of selfing. It's performative a lot with people. But on the other hand, when you get into it in therapy, it's real. If it's not real, it won't have traction. It needs to be real. And that's kind of wild. That's unusual in kind of the normal, you know, the normal way of relating that we have. What did you have to develop inside of yourself to be a better therapist? I had to become less oriented, less goal-directed, which sounds contradictory to what I just said, I had to be more able to tolerate a lack of progress, mm. for example. 
and become realistic about why people were not progressing because they were afraid to or they didn't know how to or or unconscious material was holding them back. It wasn't like they were trying to annoy their therapist. It was just, oh. So I had to do that. I had to learn also to not underestimate true psychopathology. There are a lot of people, maybe some listening, who are superficially high-functioning. They hold jobs, they have sustained relationships, marriages, you know, they, they function in the world. And when they're in situations that are familiar, well-controlled, not that challenging, but in other kind of situations, such as the emotional intimacy of a therapeutic relationship, suddenly, wow, you're dealing with psychological structure that is not 40 years old, it's three years old or even mm-hmm. younger. Mm-hmm. And you're dealing suddenly with some stuff that could surprise you. You know, you didn't see that coming. So I, I, I had to um, really come to appreciate over time that way down sometimes in people are some unmet needs and some psychodynamics that are perfectly understandable in a, in a toddler but can be shocking when they're suddenly, woof, coming at you full, full intensity uh, now 40 years later in your office. So I had to kind of learn about that and, and get better, you know, about understanding people and taking more time in the beginning to kind of lay a foundation and create a structure. Let's say that somebody is really considering this path. Yeah. And particularly these days, I think that there are a lot of people who are considering essentially transferring into a career in mental health from some other path, maybe related but different field, or maybe just a full-on transition. For example, one of the conversations in this episode, it's going to be toward the very end of it, is with my good friend Taylor Banfield, who was an engineer before going back to graduate school at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California, your alma mater, and deciding to become a therapist and going through that whole process. You know, it's a big change. For somebody like that, who is considering this path, what do you think people in those shoes should know about that they might not know to ask about? Wow, so many things. One is just uh, how that particular grad school handles the process of accumulating typically 3,000 hours of supervised experience. And technically, to be a licensed therapist, you need a license, which involves three things. Education, training, and examination. So you have to get an appropriate degree that ticks the boxes. So you want to make sure that whatever program you're in, especially if it doesn't sound orthodox, you know, if it's kind of a master's or a PhD in quantum psychology, check whether your program will actually involve the, I think, 10, it could be a higher number these days, 10 courses that have very specific names like developmental psychology or, you know, research methods, things like that, that you're actually taking. Okay. But the courses usually are easy. And I'll tell you a trick for passing the test when I get to that in a second. It's the 3,000 hours. That's a really difficult thing. And so double checking, you know, how effective is that grad school program at placing people into internships where they can actually get the hours? Are people required in that program to accumulate hours that they can't use 
toward their 3,000 for some technical reason. I mean, really, you know, I would check that out. The last thing I would just say is an eye-opening experience for me, having gone to the right institute, perfectly great. Then it was a PhD program. Now it's a PsyD program. When I did the prep course to pass the licensing exam, which back then was both oral and written. Now it's usually just written for all kinds of reasons. Basically, you get a cubic foot. (laughs) You get a box (laughs) with a bunch of material in it. And that's what you need to know to pass that test. Okay? Yeah, the test is standardized. Yep. And I got to tell you, half of what I was forced to learn and regurgitate and get an A in in grad school was not in the box. And half of what was in the box was not covered in grad school. So my suggestion for somebody would be to get a used copy of the box, because once you go through that year's licensing exam, it's used, so it would be cheap, no worries. And just kind of have it in your back room or back pocket while you're taking those classes. So you can kind of flip through it and see, oh, this is what the powers that be that construct the licensing exam think is really important distinct from what my wacky professor is getting into, right? And it's just leaving out or et cetera, et cetera. And that'll, that'll really help you. And then when you, then when you get ready to take the licensing exam, it'll also be more familiar to you and you'll be more likely to pass it. So I would just suggest that. Another thing I would just suggest, take a look at what a therapist is likely to make in your area. In most places, there's a shortage of licensed therapists. And if you're someone who has some kind of competitive advantage in your marketplace, like you have a particular specialty or your personality is comfortable with, you know, just kind of letting the world know about you in some way, you know, or maybe you have some particular background that puts you like a niche. So if you can tick that box, you know, that gives you some kind of competitive advantage in a sense. So don't be afraid have some kind of a realistic sense of ballpark, the number of paid sessions you think you can roughly do a week. 20 is not an unusual running average. You get much north of 30, 35 clinical hours a week. That's pretty tough, including documenting it if you're doing that. And then multiply times your likely average hourly rate. When you multiply those two numbers together, many people are kind of shocked by how big the result is. Even mm-hmm. if you apply it, you know, 50 weeks in a year, let's say, you know, and then based on that, think about the cost of grad school. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. you think about that, the cost of your grad school will be spread out over the course of your career, but the benefits of doing what you really love doing in a prestigious kind of way that has real standing is helping your own growth in the process you know, and something you can actually do well into your 60s and 70s and even beyond, because therapy is one of those professions that really rewards experience. You know, then it's not so daunting to think about the dollars involved in graduate school. I mean, don't be a fool, but don't be overly pessimistic and overly alarmed by the money that's involved. Yeah. And just to add an addendum to that, a huge part of the cost of graduate school is the money that you can't make while you're in graduate school. Truth. Essentially the opportunity cost of it. Because yeah, that's true. even though many graduate programs, to be perfectly frank, it's kind of hard to not get a B in yeah. a lot of the classes, just being honest and Truth. real about it. 
Many classes are also offered pass-fail at many universities. You just have to pass. No one is ever going to look at your MFT program GPA. That's right. And maybe for some specific, if you want to go into a doctoral program after you do your master's, sure, maybe then it would matter. But as a clinician, nobody cares. No one's going to ask that question. That said, it is a lot of work. It's a lot of reading. It's a lot of time in class. It's a lot of efforting. And the reality for most people is that uh, they go into graduate school with the thought in their minds that they're going to be able to hold down a second job or something along the lines of that while they're in graduate school. And yes, some people are capable of doing that, but that's really hard. Speaking as somebody who just watched my partner go through graduate school, like, wow, it's very, very difficult to do that. She did that for for some parts of it, and it was very challenging. So just get real about that side of the income part of it, Great. too, in terms of totally the right opportunity on. cost along the way. Yeah. yeah. So I am asking everybody that I have these conversations with a question, Dad, and I would love it if you could help me answer it. If you don't like fill in the blank, you probably shouldn't become a therapist. I was going to start with if you don't like being self-employed. Mm. But there are many ways to be a therapist in an agency setting. Yeah, totally. Working for the state, working for the county. Yeah, school district. Yeah. But if you're aiming for, you know, a private practice, yeah. You know, you have to be okay with that. Long time ago, I maybe I've told you the story already. I was talking with my friend Bob Trug, who you know, he's your godfather, and uh, Bob was recounting this harrowing tale of when he was a uh, chief resident at a hospital in Colorado. He had to save the life of a child under incredibly tense circumstances. And I, when he was done, I said, Bob, how do you handle the stress? And he knew I'd been self-employed for a long time. And he said, well, Rick, actually for me, stress is not knowing where my paycheck's coming from. Right. Mm -hmm. So there is a kind of stress in being self-employed. So you got to be comfortable with that. If you cannot regulate your behavior with other people, and stay out of trouble, don't become a therapist. Yeah. So you got to be able to regulate yourself appropriately and including paying attention to nuances that for you are neutral or even well-intended, yet could be misunderstood, understandably, by another person. You know, you have to be incredibly careful with confidentiality. So you just want to make sure that you can Stay buttoned up. Yeah, ethical cleanliness is a huge part of the job. Yeah, ethical hygiene. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, ethical like hygiene. Cleanliness. I, love that. Yeah. I like that cleanliness one. That was great. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Ah, uh, that's a great question for us. No one's ever well, asked. Thank you. If if you can't listen to someone telling you about some really painful, even terrible things that have happened to them or the difficulties they're having in their life, if you can't listen to them with your heart open, fully there to help them. And if you can't walk through the door of your home when you get there later in the day and basically leave that behind, maybe in the back of your mind you're preoccupied by it or haunted by it, but generally speaking, if you can't maintain some kind of boundary between their mind stream, their suffering, their difficulties, and your own life, then that that would be tough. That would be tough yeah. to be a therapist. Yeah. That's a great answer. As we get to the end of this, Dad, is there anything else that you just have burning a hole in your pocket, proverbially speaking here, that you think that people should know about or you think that it would be really helpful for somebody to know or hear 
as they engage in this consideration of maybe becoming a therapist. I'm going to say something that you may need to edit out later. So if people actually <laughs> do hear it, uh, the fact that I've said that will make sense to you. So I think there's a wide variation in the competence of therapists. Hmm. You know, there's a bell curve, there's a distribution. And in my personal experience, every therapist I've ever known was well-intended. And every therapist I've ever known had a good heart. Many of the therapists I've known were not very effective. Hmm. And people I know who've gone to different therapists will often talk about the ineffectiveness of their therapist. They were nice, they listened, but you know, we never seemed to get to the bottom of anything. Or they were nice, they listened, but I, I never knew what to do. It didn't go forward. You know, when it was all done, I, I had this kind of nice feeling that someone had listened to me, but you know, I'm kind of the same. My mood's roughly the same. I'm still doing these things that are problematic. I'm not moving forward in my life. You know, I still don't know how to interact with our kid, whatever it might have been. So I say that not to revile my profession or to put myself up in any way. It's more like I do have a bit of a bee in the bonnet, like other people do, like Scott Miller, who talks about the importance of improving therapeutic efficacy. There's a kind of complacence that can sink in among therapists. You know, you're nice, you're listening, they, your clients keep coming, they keep paying you, but are they actually substantially and often rapidly getting better? That's a long way of saying both to therapists who are listening to kind of look hard at ourselves. I've had to look hard at myself at different times. Like, am I getting anywhere with somebody and really needing to call it? Like, we're not making progress here. We got to be honest mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. On the one hand. On the other hand, to an aspiring therapist, if you think there's good reason to believe that you're going to be good at this, you're going to have passion for it, you have a natural talent when it comes to other people, you care, and you're going to have a steep learning curve, you are likely to be very successful. Mm. An additional thing I would, I would say is to respect your craft. It's a little bit like, I guess, being a rookie baseball player. You know, respect the game. And in the domain of clinical psychology, there's actually at this point a very robust body of knowledge about how the mind works, how it interacts with our underlying neurobiology, and different kinds of methods that are effective there. And so when you go through your training, take it really seriously, including the assessment portions. One of the things that I started doing as a young therapist was assessments. And that kind of rigor and clarity about understanding the mind was really, really helpful to me. I don't say that because you have to get into doing assessments with people, but I just mean take the body of knowledge seriously. There's a lot of good stuff in it. Yeah, blow off the stuff that doesn't really mean anything or add any value in grad school, but respect the craft that you're acquiring. It'll serve you well to do so. Great. Thanks for doing this with me, Dad. Completely a pleasure. The next conversation I had was with Lori Gottlieb, 
Lori is a practicing therapist in Los Angeles and is the author of the wonderful book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It's one of my absolute favorite books about therapy. I'd recommend it to just about anyone. And it is particularly relevant for anyone who is considering becoming a therapist or a career in mental health more broadly. So here's my conversation with Lori. So Lori, thanks for doing this today. How are you doing? Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super happy to be doing this with you again. Loved talking with you a couple of times for the podcast. And I felt that you were like the perfect person to talk to you for this episode because a big part of your personal story involves a major career transition. And if I'm remembering correctly, you used to work in film and TV, right, before you transitioned into being a clinician? Yeah, I took a very nonlinear route to becoming a therapist, but I think it mm-hmm. makes sense in retrospect. So yeah. I was always interested in story and the human condition. And so when I was working in film and then and then later I moved over to NBC as a network executive, I loved the stories that really resonated in terms of these universal truths that we feel mm. as humans. And I was working on a show called ER where I got to pretty well-known show. <laughs> well-known show. Um, I, I was not one of the writers. I was an executive on the show. Yeah, and cool. I would go into the emergency room with our consultant on the show, who was an actual ER doctor. And he kept saying to me, you know, I think you like it better here than you like your day job. And it was true because when people come to an emergency room, it's a point of inflection in their lives. Nobody goes because you expected something to happen. Yeah. And I was fascinated by those moments in people's lives. And so I decided to go to medical school. So I went up to Stanford for medical school. I took all the classes and did all the things I needed to do. And when I got there, a lot of my professors were talking about how there was this new thing at the time called managed care and how my whole dream of really following people's lives and stories was going to be very difficult in the current medical environment. And as it happened, I started writing about my experiences and I published my first book and I decided to leave medical school to become a journalist where I felt like I could help people to tell their stories. And I love doing that and I still do that. I still am a writer, but there was something missing from that, which was, it was one thing to help people tell their stories. It's another thing to help people to change their stories. And I decided I called up the dean at, at, at Stanford and said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she mm-hmm. said, look, you can come back. I just had a baby too. And she said, you can come back, but do you really want to do residency and all yeah. those things, you know, with, with your, with a baby, with a toddler and a lot of your training is going to be medication management. And, and mm-hmm. I, and she knew me very well. And she said, you know, I know that you want those deeper, longer conversations and explorations. Yeah. And she said, why don't you get a graduate degree in clinical psychology? And that mm-hmm. was exactly what I did. And I feel like I really did go from helping people to tell their stories to helping people to change their stories. I'm wondering if you could go back to right before you started your graduate program in clinical psych. I'm trying to find the right way to phrase this, but basically, is there anything looking back on it today as a clinician, as somebody who sat with people and helped them change those stories that would have really surprised the you back then about what being a therapist is actually like? Oh, definitely. I Mm. think that my idea of being a therapist came from 
where we all get our ideas from media. You know, yeah. where, what therapists have you seen? Because this is not a job that people see happen. You know, like if it's yeah, like take yeah. your kid to work day, you don't take them into <laughs> your sessions. You know, so someone might see their parents' job in a different way, but for us, we don't even talk about our jobs mm-hmm. because everything's confidential. You can't, yeah. So I think that it's people don't really know what the experience is like until you're actually doing it. And so I think that what I wish that I had known back then or what surprised me was just how human it is to be a therapist, that it's not Mm. this kind of brick wall. It's not this very formal role. Obviously, we have all kinds of, you know, boundaries that we hold Mm -hmm. in therapy, but just the intensity of the human connection and the the meaning that you get every Mm. day in your job. I don't think I really appreciated that until I became a therapist. Is that a, was that emotional intimacy or presence intimacy, human connection intimacy, however you want to kind of say it, something that you felt came kind of naturally to you or was it something that you had to get more comfortable with? I think both. I think that it mm. came naturally out in the world, but mm. I think that it's in the therapy room, it, there's a different level of intimacy mm. that on the one hand is less than what happens out there and is also more than what happens out there in a different way. We have conversations in therapy that we don't tend to have out in the world, even with people that we're very close to. Yeah. And so I think that was sort of like a window into the human experience that felt so connecting. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that what was also surprising was how much I learned about myself by learning about others how much I had to ask myself the same questions that I was asking of the people who sat in front of me or sat with me. Yeah. Yeah. So therapy is a skill. You are becoming a better clinician over time, hopefully. What do you think you've gotten the most better at over the years? I think meeting the client where the client is Mm. and not worrying about my agenda. I think in the beginning, you want to help so much yeah, And you don't realize that you can get in your own way and you can get in the client's way. That really following the client and having an idea in your head about where you're going, but not being so rigid about how to get there. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to play chess as a kid and mm-hmm. like very seriously and competitively. And one of the things that you learn when you're playing chess is that you have to think several moves ahead. Mm-hmm. But you have to be flexible because they might do something that you don't expect. And so you have to have lots of different ways of of getting to where you want to get and, and really be able to pivot and shift. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a that's a really great skill to have. When you're working with people, are there particular modalities that you feel like you rely on as a clinician or ways of thinking about therapy in general? Or would you refer to yourself as just more of a generalist? I think the word generalist is misleading because I think that Mm. what I do in there is very specific. But I do think that I'm very eclectic in terms of what I might do in any given moment. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I like that. And I think that timing and dosage is really important. I think often we can see things because we have the vantage point of not living in that person's life. We can see things about patterns, about connections, about you know attachment, about whatever it might be. And then how do we communicate that to the client that doesn't feel intellectual, but feels like mm-hmm. a real emotional shift for them where they can really take it in and it will move them somewhere else. 
Mm. And I think that the timing is really important. And I think that the dosage is really important. So when will I say it and how much will I say and how will I deliver it? Because I think the beauty of therapy is that you have another session. I have a podcast called Dear Therapist where we do actual sessions with people. So we have one session with them. Yeah. But I feel like we have almost three opportunities, even though there's one session. So there's the opportunity in the session where you can say something. And then at what point in the session? So you might at the beginning of the session, think about something, and then you might not deliver it till later in the session. But we have that opportunity in the session. Then we give them homework and they have one week to try out the homework and then report back to us. So when they're doing the homework, there's opportunity too. And then the third opportunity is when they listen to the episode Mm. and they get to hear their session. Yeah, yeah. That must be pretty cool for people. Right. And I think that, you know, we don't get that when we just go to therapy. We don't listen back on our sessions. So I think that even in one session, you can really help people to make a shift. I would love your help completing a sentence that I'm asking a lot of the people who are doing this with me. If you don't like fill in the blank, you probably shouldn't become a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't like vulnerability, Mm. you probably shouldn't become a therapist. Yeah. I would say if you don't like uncertainty, you probably shouldn't become a therapist. Because so many curveballs come in the door every day. And I think for me, that's exciting. That's what makes it interesting. That you never know, no matter how well you think you know a person, you really don't know what they're going to say that day or what they're going to share, what you're going to learn about them. And, And also, if you don't like making mistakes, don't become a therapist. Yeah, that's a great one. Because I feel like, we make mistakes all the time. And then it's not about whether you make a mistake. It's how do you repair it? How transparent are you about it? How much consultation are you going to get? And how much can you discuss this with your colleagues about, I did this and I saw that the client had this reaction and I wish I hadn't done that. And to get feedback about how can I repair this? How can I talk about this? You're going to make so many mistakes, but you're going to grow from the mistakes. But not only are you going to grow, the client is going to grow from your mistakes. Yeah, totally. Those positive opportunities to repair a moment of of, um, bad communication or just a bump in the road with another person. A lot of people just don't have that in their their quote-unquote normal life. They haven't gotten a lot of those positive repair experiences. So just being able to model that in therapy is really helpful for people. Yeah. So if you could go back in time and tell yourself something when you were about to start sitting with people for the first time, which... I know a little bit vicariously from Elizabeth could be a stressful experience. What would it be? What would you want to say to that person? So I write about my very first session in my book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. And I thought it was really important to share that because it really was a lesson for me that I took with me that I take into the therapy room with me every day still, which was this young woman came in. And I had never been, you know, this is my, this is my first client in my internship and they just throw you in a room. (laughs) You know, you've done like role plays and things like that, but it's, it's wild. And the person who's sitting across from you does not know this. They know your training, Mm -hmm. but they 
don't necessarily know that you literally have never done this. Yeah. And it was an intake. And I thought, well, how hard can this be? Like, there's just certain information that I need to get. It's an intake. I know exactly what I need to ask. I had been a journalist before this. Like, I, I thought I'm really good at getting yeah, information to go. like this. Totally. I'm, I'm like, oh, piece of cake. And so I thought, this isn't like really the therapy. The next session will be. So this one I wasn't so nervous about. Little did I know. So the woman comes in and the first thing she does is she sits on the couch and she starts crying. And I don't mean like her eyes were tearing up or a tear escaped. I mean, she is, it's like, it's like it's she's going. just going. Yeah. It's going. It's a storm. <laughs> and I have no idea what to do. I've never said, and, and you're in these tiny little rooms too, you know, at <laughs> this internship site. So I'm really close to her. And I never really sat with a stranger who was crying hysterically about whom I knew nothing who was crying like that. And I had no idea what to do. And I thought, do I look at her so she knows I'm with her? Do I look away so she doesn't feel self-conscious? Little things like this that you yeah, don't even totally. know what to do. What am I supposed to do right here? And by the way, I have this intake form <laughs> and I'm going to get fired <laughs> in my mind if I don't get the answers to these questions. And how inappropriate would it be if I start asking these questions? Yeah, yeah. And so finally, I say, after she's crying for what feels like an eternity, I say, wow, you seem really depressed. And then I think that is the stupidest <laughs> thing that somebody like, you know, can we just like state the blatantly obvious here? But she stopped crying and she almost smiled and she said, yes, nobody has ever used that word. And she had been like holding all this in, like her boyfriend didn't know her at her jobs. They didn't like her family didn't know. She was not telling everyone how she was so at rock bottom here and she was depressed and she just wanted the, the, like she could breathe again because somebody said, I see you, I hear you, I understand you. Mm. And then we could start. And it was this thing where I didn't get all the questions answered or really any of the questions answered from the intake <laughs> form because she was telling me all of her experiences. Yeah. And I came into my supervisor and I said, I didn't get the form. And she said, that's okay because you stayed with her. You did what she needed. And I think that that's so important just to realize that, you know, what our purpose is in that room, that we need to be with the client. We need to be, I feel like we are a witness and a guide and we need to be both. And I think about that session every time something happens in the therapy room where I'm like, what is going on here? <laughs> Especially with couples. <laughs> what is going on here? Um, I see a lot of couples in my practice and I think about that all the time. Like, how can I be with them in this moment in the way they need me to be right now? Well, it's a great story. I think it's a fantastic lesson for people to take away from this. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to do this with me today, Laurie. Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having these conversations. I think they're so important. And I wish that I had been able to listen to something like this when I was starting out. Oh, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I absolutely loved talking with Lori, and if you're listening to a podcast episode like this, I would really recommend her podcast, Dear Therapists, with Guy Winch. It gives one of the best looks inside the counseling room that's out there, and if you like being well, you'll probably love it. As somebody who has a long history of painful acne and related skin issues, I know how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's where our sponsor, OneSkin, comes in. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in symptoms without addressing many of the underlying causes. 
OneSkin's OS01 line of products targets cellular senescence. This is a key hallmark of aging, directly with their proprietary OS01 peptide. The OS01 peptide can reduce the number of senescent cells by up to 50%, strengthening the skin barrier, improving skin health markers, and reducing visible signs of aging. I've been using their OS01 face topical supplement, and I love how simple it is. You just cleanse, you pat your skin dry, and apply twice daily. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. We all know that the food we eat today affects how we feel tomorrow, but what if I told you that it could affect how you felt in 20 years? We're learning so much these days about our bodies, and one of the challenges for people right now is that there's an enormous amount of information out there, but it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe Science and Nutrition is Super easy to consume, even if you don't understand the science, with loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting, cutting-edge science. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Naomi and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. My next guest for this episode is Terry Real. Terry is an internationally recognized family therapist, the best-selling author of a number of books, including Us and I Don't Want to Talk About It, and the creator of Relational Life Therapy. I had a lot of fun talking with Terry again. Here's my conversation with him. I'm now with Terry Real. Terry is a longtime therapist and the founder of the Relational Life Institute. He's also the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Us, Getting Past You and Me to Build a More Loving Relationship. So, Terry, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. It's really a pleasure to be here, Forrest. Yeah, I always love talking with you, Terry. It just like feels so natural and so good. And I would love to start with just a little background on you for people who might not be familiar with your work. How do you get into being a clinician? Well, uh, you know, uh, my throwaway line is I started being a family therapist at about four. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> if you knew my family, you'd know why. <laughs> I was a writer. I was mm-hmm. a therapist. And uh, actually, in my young days, I wrote two novels. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I spent four years in a PhD program in comparative literature. Hmm. And uh, I knew that something was wrong, and I left my marriage, I left my spiritual practice, I left my PhD program, I left New York, and I moved to Boston, Hmm. drove a cab, and wrote my second novel. And it was was in the mid-70s, early 70s, and personal growth was really big. I was living with a bunch of roommates. And everybody was doing some kind of therapy work. Hmm. So I volunteered at a place called Project Place, where basically 
I talked people down off of bad acid trips. Wow. <laughs> uh, and then parlayed that into being a mental health worker, it was called, a mm. glorified nurse's aide in a local psychiatric locked ward of Central Hospital. When I was training uh, to be a mental health worker, I was doing a role play with a role play client. And I said to my friends, I knew more about what to do sitting in that chair than I knew in five years in comparative literature. I just mm. knew I was born for this. I got a social work degree. I wasn't going to go back in another PhD, and I'm too squeamish to be an MD, so I got an MSW, which I'm now very pleased that I did because it's a very ecological, systemic way of working. Hung a shingle and started my private practice as soon as I could. I actually had to go into therapy to embrace my new identity as a therapist. I'd been a writer mm. my whole life, and it was about my trauma. Ever since I was a little kid, I, I, I wanted to tell the story. I knew I needed to make sense out of the violence that I had lived through. And I, I went into therapy to give that up. I didn't write for 25 years. And then uh, one of my great mentors, an incredible, legendary feminist family therapist, Olga Silverstein from the Ackerman Family Institute. And she said, I'm going to change your life. And I said, what, again? And she said, yeah, I'm writing a book on mothers and sons. And my very smart agent has looked around and no one's ever written a book about men in depression. And she has all these famous therapists on board. But I said, there's this kid in Boston. I was in my 30s. There's this kid in Boston. And I think he's the guy. I said, Olga, I'm a family therapist. I don't think about things like discrete disease entities. You know, but that's for psychology types. I don't think like these, you know, study depression, right? I think about men, depression as being a relational disorder. Men are depressed because we throw boys out of relationship under patriarchy. And then the light dawned on me and, and it was like, why don't you write that? And then he had a book. Yeah. And that's, I don't want to talk about it. That's how I became yeah. who I am. That's awesome. And you, I mean, you said so much there that I, I would love to touch on here in the little time that we have. The first thing that really stood out to me is how you said, I went to counseling to be a counselor. You know, I had to go to therapy myself to become a therapist. And that's something that I think surprises a lot of people about the process that in the course of going to graduate school or even just like sitting with clients, the ways in which your own material can really get stirred up by the person who's sitting across from you. So, what do you think some of the things were inside of yourself that you needed to look at or unpack or do some work on? in order to become a better clinician? Well, first of all, in the work that I do and teach, relational life therapy, many schools say it'd be a good idea to do some psychological work. And in RLT, mm -hmm. it's a requirement. Yeah. Uh, for example, you, you have to be in uh, some recovery around self-esteem mm. in order to work. You know, RLT, we work a lot with grandiose people. We, we confront grandiosity. We're known for that. If you're in a one-down shame state, they'll blow right by you. Mm. If you're in a one-up grandiose state yourself, you get triggered and you look down your nose at somebody who's being difficult, uh, they'll smell that. Uh, you mm. have to be in your own self-esteem recovery 
or the wheels won't go. I mean, the car just mm-hmm. won't move. So we have to do our own work as therapists in order to take, we're not going to take anybody anywhere that's beyond where we've gone. Yeah. It's just a delusion. Totally. So we have to do totally. our work, all of us. Mm. Was there something that drew you specifically to more relational work with people, whether it's working with individuals in terms of dealing with their relational wounds or, or couples, families, things like that? I got trained in individual therapy. I started off in psychoanalytic therapy. Well, I'm so far from that now, but uh, that was my early training. And I say I, I had to learn to be a therapist in order to have the conversation with my father mm. about his childhood that I needed to have with him in order to free myself. Mm. Uh, he was a very closed man, and I needed all of my therapy skills to get the guy to tell me what happened. And then I went on the family therapy training to learn how to have a relationship. Uh, what drives me is my own, look, I come from tough dysfunction. And there's an old saying, therapists are people who need to be in therapy 40 hours a week. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I had to figure out how to heal myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And then I moved into relational work to figure out how to have a relationship myself. Mm-hmm. Was there anything that surprised you when you first started sitting with people about what therapy was actually like? Oh, my God. Let me tell you, my first private client ever yeah. was a brilliant, beautiful feminist from San Francisco who was furious that I wouldn't make love to her. And this... Wow, now, that's in at the deep end. Yeah, in at the deep end. Nowadays, I would call her a love addict. Uh, and I yeah. know what to do with her. But uh, I mean, literally, she would sit there and go, so what are you going to do if I start taking off my shirt? I, just don't. Please just, just Wow. And, uh, oh, man. She, she wants slam, a great line I remember. This is from 40 years ago. Yeah. She wants slammed out of the therapy going, the difference, seeing you is like seeing a high-priced hooker. The only difference is when you leave a hooker, you're satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, that was a tough one. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> I was in the fire. You know, I, I started off doing transformist-based work. It was psychodynamic yeah. work. Mm-hmm. And what... I came to realize very quickly it was what a wonderful teacher, Paul Russell, called the crunch, that mm. whatever the wound is, is going to be enacted between you and the client, and it's going mm. to be enacted in real time. If you say to the client, no, you're imagining this, this is your transfer, so I'm not really insensitive or angry or whatever they're projecting onto you, they go nuts. Because you did say something insensitive, or you Mm. were a little impatient. So what I was unprepared for in transference-based work was the real relationship. Mm. Nobody ever talked to me about the real relationship. And then I moved from there into thinking about uh, projective identification and how the inside goes outside and the outside goes inside. Still psychodynamic. One of my case teachers was at the Family Institute of Cambridge, Sally Ann Roth. And she said, you know, 
you're, you're like inventing family therapy all over again. Why don't you come and train with us? And then she called me up one day and she said, we have a full scholarship. Somebody mm-hmm. who had it just dropped out. This is like a, a 10, this is back in 1980. This is like a year long $10,000 training I'll give to you for free. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, all right, I'll try it. Yeah. I worked to my first family therapy class and my mind was alone. Mm. It was like moving from 2D to 3D. It was like, wait a minute. It's not all just what goes on inside of an individual. An individual lives in a context. Mm. And if you don't deal with the context, you're screwed. And here I am at 72, what, 40 years later, writing a book that's a critique of the in- individualism yeah. saying there is no such thing as an individual out of context. And that's my latest, you know, thinking and work. But it started all the way back then in my first training as a family. You know, here's an example. A kid at school truant doesn't go to school. An individual therapist goes in. What does the truancy mean to the kid? A family therapist goes out. Who's the kid going home to take care of? Hmm. That question was like a revelation to me. Yeah. There's more here than just what goes on inside one person's skin. Help me out with a question here, Terry, if you could. Just fill in the blank for me. If you don't like fill in the blank, you might have a hard time being a therapist. (laughs) If you don't like mess. Uh, (laughs) If you're a very tidy person. My dad has a great line that's related to therapy, which is which just dovetails with that really beautifully, where it's something like, you know, the, the brain is just a messy place. Like the mind is a cave of bats, I think is one of the lines that he likes. And there's just a lot that comes out in the room that can be really surprising. Like you were talking about with that one client, it get really messy. <laughs> you know, relationships are, are full of mess. I love Ed Tronick's work, the infant observational researcher. Mm-hmm. And I love his new book, The Power of Discord. All relationships are an endless dance of harmony, disharmony, and repair. Mm-hmm. And our culture doesn't teach us how to deal with moving from disharmony into repair because it doesn't really honor disharmony to begin with. I'm all over the internet now. I at 40 years of work, I said one phrase and the internet lit up. I, I spoke about normal marital hatred. And well, if Google it, they're like a hundred, uh, you know, opinions about of all the things to be known for. That's what I'm going to go to the grave being known for. <laughs> but uh, the disharmony aspect of you go go through harmony, disharmony, and repair over the course of twenty years. Mm. You can go through harmony, disharmony, repair twenty times in one dinner conversation, and we need to embrace the whole of it. We long for the divine. We long for a god or goddess that's going to complete us. Mm. The real intimacy, both with ourselves and with others, is the collision of imperfections. Your imperfections and theirs and how we deal with it. Mm. And that's what we uh, therapists, you know, um, uh, I love poetry and uh, there's a beautiful couplet in an Auden poem. I will love my crooked neighbor. I will love my crooked neighbor. 
with my crooked heart. I'm no better than you are. That's really beautiful, Terry. And I think that it's also just a great, in its own way, a great summary of the work that you do with people and of your work broadly, you know, bringing people together, even inside of their imperfections and accepting them as they are. is just a huge part of, uh, of what I've personally learned from you and I've taken into my own life or tried to. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to do this with me today. So thank you once again for being here. Beautiful work for us as always, and as always, really fun and lively to speak with. Again, that was Terry Real. You can find his work at terryreal.com, and he is the author of the best-selling book, Us. And if you are a therapist or you're considering becoming a therapist, he also offers a certification course in his relational life therapy modality. It's helped a lot of people. I would really strongly recommend it. And I've included links to all of that in the description of today's podcast. Terry also offers a variety of workshops and courses and training programs for non-clinicians as well. Thanks again to Terry for taking the time to be on the show. And my next conversation is with my wonderful partner, Elizabeth Ferreira. Elizabeth is a graduate of the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, and she is currently a practicing associate therapist in the Bay Area. That means that she is working under the license of a full clinician, and she herself is on her path to licensure. I always love talking with Elizabeth on the podcast. I take every opportunity I can to do it, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation with her. So, Elizabeth, thanks for doing this with me today. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. I'm glad. I feel energized. I feel really excited to chat with you again. Yeah. So this series is focused on helping people who are considering becoming a therapist. Mm -hmm. You were in those shoes about five years ago. Mm -hmm. At the time, if I'm remembering correctly, you were working as a professional dancer. Yep. Before then, you were in this really interesting kind of pre-med program in high school. You went from there to get a double major in college. And if I'm remembering correctly, it was theater and English. Mm -hmm. What made you want to be a therapist out of all of that? The funny and the true answer, I think, is trauma, my own pathology, mm. you know? Um, <laughs> like, if we're just being really honest. Wow, like, we started really real. This is great. I, you know, I was the caretaker in yeah. my family. I took on that role. and. We are but servants to our pathology. You can only escape it to a certain extent. And mm. so it makes a lot of sense why I became a therapist and why I got kind of moved into that place. So let's unpack that a little bit. Great. If you're up for it. Yeah, yeah. Why would somebody who has a background like that be drawn to therapy? As someone who grew up in a persistent state of hypervigilance, I've always been really aware of other people mm. and aware of how other people feel. A lot of my pre-master's degree was focused around people. In a mm. way, it was a curiosity of what is it like being human. In theater in particular, you get to literally be someone different. Mm. Mm -hmm. You enter the psychology of another person to portray their experience on the stage. And that was always very freeing and mm -hmm. safe for me because, wow, what a relief to be somebody other than who I am. And even in dancing, there's something 
very somatic about that. You know, you're able to express yourself without words, which always resonated with me. And it's a form of being in community and being seen without feeling so exposed. Mm -hmm. So if you really were to look back at where I was before somatics and all of that, all the elements were there. I was curious about people. I was curious about myself. And I was very bought in that the body has to be included in this role of self-expression and mm -hmm. self-discovery. So as you said, you focus on somatic therapy, mm -hmm. which is one of many branches of the, the tree of psychology. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's the one that you gravitated towards. And part of the reason I think that you gravitated toward it was because you aren't, you're obviously a, a very thoughtful person and a, and a very intelligent person, but the kind of classic lay on a couch depiction of psychology and therapy was was just didn't speak to you. Mm -mm. You're a more body-based person. And so just like being introduced to an option that existed that wasn't that like classic psychoanalysis was I think a real way in for you. Yeah. Yeah. I am not a very cognitive person. We've mm -hmm. even talked about it. I don't really have an internal monologue. Yeah. So the concept before I entered into this field of sitting there and talking to people all day long felt very counterintuitive to my natural state of being mm. because I frankly don't like talking very much <laughs> and I would much rather roll on the floor. Yeah. Um, you know, like you got to get the vibe of what I'm trying to say totally. without me saying it. Totally. I just have to intuit it from across the room. Yes. 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 Which you do a great job at. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you. I've gotten better at it. <laughs> I've learned. <laughs> anyway, so... Yeah, you're you're connecting to something very true where I don't think I would be where I am today if somatic psychology wasn't a thing. Mm, mm -hmm. If it weren't an option for you. Yeah. yeah. And learning that all of these sort of elements between writing and literature and acting and dance all kind of got funneled into one neat package, which is somatic psychology, was like, wow, Yeah, how I don't have to fragment my interests. Now mm. they're all in one thing. Yeah. So you spent, I think it was two years in graduate school. This is at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Three. Yes, three years in graduate school, but two years in graduate school before you started seeing people. Yeah. And then uh, last year you had a practicum where they, you know, it's in a supervised context, but they release you into the wild. One day you aren't sitting with people, one day you are. If you look at the way that you work with clients now, because now you're an associate therapist, you've earned your master's, that means that you're working essentially under the supervision of somebody with a license, but your work is your work. You're, you're maintaining your own practice, you're seeing people individually, you've been doing that for nine months-ish mm -hmm. now, like sneaking up on a year. What do you think the biggest difference is between what you did or how you felt, how you practiced at the beginning of that process, or maybe like the second time that you sat with somebody versus the sorts of work that you're doing now with people? Mm. I think before there was this internal breaking, like, like kind of like a horse, right? You're pulling the mm. reins back. That happened a lot where I would question my instincts. I would question my impulse to say something and in that, I kind of was a, a home run hitter where I would say nothing for a very long time. Mm -hmm. 
And then I would say something that had high impact. Mm-hmm. You were very judicious about how often you gave direction. Yes. Or, yeah. I was very non-directional mm-hmm. at that time. And during that time, I was paying way more attention to the impact other people had on me. Mm-hmm. And I think that came from a place of who am I as a therapist? Mm-hmm. Now I feel like I at least have the outline. I may not have all the details, but I know who I am. Mm-hmm. And so the work now is much more liberated. I trust my instincts more. And I'm more of myself in the room than Mm -hmm. I was before. Mm -hmm. What does that look like in practice, do you think? I allow myself to be human. I allow myself to have my limits. And... By being more myself, it also means being vulnerable in that room. So before, there were certain things that I just would not touch on because it was too triggering for my own material. I didn't feel like I had much experience. And now I try and I allow myself to make mistakes Mm -hmm. and I trust myself to be able to repair, Mm. that nothing that happens in the room is beyond a repair. And a repair can look very different, but I used to avoid and try to be perfect and try to anticipate everything and kind of coddle people, I think, a little too much. Mm. And now I trust people more with their own suffering. Mm. So a second ago, you mentioned that something could happen in the room that would be too activating or too triggering of your own material. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we've talked about a lot throughout this process and throughout your graduate school process as well is how part of the, the adventure of becoming a therapist is really about unearthing your own content. Yes. And and coming face to face with it because it's inevitably going to be become a subject in the room. It like can't not become a subject in the room because you're dealing with vulnerable emotions for people of different kinds. And when their emotions bump into your emotions, things are going to happen. So how big of a part of the learning process for you of becoming a therapist was about essentially coming to terms with your own content? A huge part. Yeah. And I would argue that's the whole point of graduate school. Mm. It's the whole point. The whole point is for you to unearth your material, know thyself, so that you don't wreck yourself when you're a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A joke. But yeah, it's it's inevitable. Mm. Your material will be activated by your clients. I think so much of learning how to be a therapist is learning how to tolerate uncomfortable experiences that activate some of your material, but it doesn't overwhelm you. It doesn't move you into being actively triggered in there. Mm -hmm. And then with that, knowing the populations that you just cannot work with Mm. and coming to terms with, I am not a good fit for this person because I am constantly being triggered. Sure. So if half of my resources are spent of just me trying to like sit here I'm not You're not, gonna I'm not providing yeah. therapy. Totally, yeah. totally. And I think that was also a big part of it for you was figuring out 
where you were a really phenomenal fit and also figuring out just like what kind of work wasn't really for you. Not yeah. because you couldn't do it, but because it didn't make sense for you to do it. Like, yeah. why would you do it? Because you were a great fit in what you found so far, which is predominantly trauma work. Mm -hmm. A big part of that is interacting with people who are having a really bad day yeah, or a really bad, a lot longer than a day for just a, a lot really of people. Bad. Yeah, just a really they're bad. They're in the really bad. Yeah, they're in yeah. the really, wow, what a good, <laughs> That's why you're the therapist. <laughs> they are in the really bad, you know. And uh, that takes a toll on you. Yeah. That is a lot of material to carry around in a context where, like, you're seeing five people in a day, mm -hmm. four of whom are having one of the worst days of their life. And yeah. they're in the room because that's how they feel. How have you learned to work with that over time? Or what's that like for you? Hmm. Thank you for asking that question. Mm. Yeah, as I take in that question, like I feel emotional in a good way. I will say that some days it can be really hard. Mm. And it is challenging to learn how to sit in compassion. And if we look at the word compassion, what it actually means is to suffer with. Mm. So I've had to learn how to suffer with someone in the room. And based on my knowledge as a somatic therapist, emotions, experiences, all of it, it's just energy. It's just a state of activation in the body. Mm. And we're meant as animals to move through that experience. And what I've learned how to do over time and what I continue to be humbled by and continue to learn how to do is how to suffer with someone and then move through it on my time out of that space. Mm. Learning how to move that energy inside of myself so that I am not holding on to it yeah. and taking it into the rest of my day. Mm. What are some of the things you've done to do that? Having a rich spiritual life does that for me incorporating a lot more play in my mm, life. Mm -hmm. Like, damn, is my job serious? But <laughs> I serious, yes. I play a lot. Yeah. I have a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And I let my inner child out when I'm not working. Mm -hmm. And also doing my own work. Mm -hmm. mm. Like if something isn't moving through me, then it means that it is actually mine. Was it hard to cultivate the self-awareness involved with that? Because one of the things that's come up for us a lot that I don't think we've actually talked about ever in any of these previous recordings that we've done for the podcast is, or something you've talked about in the practice of therapy, which of course I've never experienced because I'm not a therapist, is the way in which a feeling can appear in the room. And it's sometimes kind of hard to tell if you're feeling an emotion because you're experiencing that emotion or if you're feeling an emotion because your client is experiencing an emotion and you're getting a kind of reciprocation of it. There's a technical term for it that's different than that, but that's maybe the more colloquial way to put transference. it. Transference. Transference, yeah. Was it a lot of work to learn what's transference and what's yours or what's your client's? Yeah. Yeah. And it continues to be work. Yeah. And I, I want to be really clear about something. I work a lot with transference and countertransference because 
I am a somatic therapist. So I am paying so much attention to the vibe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's very vibe driven. All vibes, you know. What's that phrase? All vibe, all vibes. Good vibes only? Is that what we're thinking of? No, there was a phrase that's like all vibes know something. All I can think of right now is all gas, no brakes, but that's that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, I'm sure that that is an expression, but all that's come to mind is all yeah, gas, yeah, no yeah, brakes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So because that is such a huge part of my practice, I'm never not in that mental space mm. of awareness. I'm never not looking or asking the question, wait a minute, is this mine or is this the other person? Yeah, it's just part of the practice. It's just yeah. a part of the practice. So it's not like all of a sudden you reach a state of awareness and you're like, my energy's blue and everybody else's, you know, whatever. <laughs> like you just get better at being in that awareness mm -hmm. and asking yourself the right questions mm -hmm. and maintaining a sense of curiosity and having, frankly, the balls to say to the person, hey, I might be off, but I'm feeling this. What about you? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think the bravery part of it gets gets under-discussed. That it can be really hard. You're in there, I, I mean, you tell me. What I've heard from other people is that it can be really difficult when you're in the room with somebody who's really going through it. They're heavily defended around something. You're trying to help them unpack this thing. And they're putting a lot on you in that moment. To have the kind of critical moment where the the relationship is built up to a point where you can say, look, my guy, I, I think this is a you problem here. And that often is like very difficult for people to receive, understandably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still not the best at that, directly being like, it's you. <laughs> you know? um, well, maybe it just means you're a good therapist that you don't do it very often. Cool, so. you know, we'll, we'll, we'll find out, yeah. you know, call me back in two years. Maybe yeah. it'll be different. But confrontation of any form takes a heap of bravery from the therapist. Yeah. Especially if you're working with a conscious therapist. Sure. A therapist who's aware of all this shit. Mm-hmm. I think it can be really easy in other modalities that are so structured on a technique to forget about the person. Mm -hmm. And at least in my practice, you're always aware of the person. Mm -hmm. You're always aware of how that person is feeling. And you become so aware of their material that sometimes it can be really difficult to make a confrontation, especially when it makes a whole lot of sense why this person is kind of trapped in this structure. Yeah. And a lot of it is you have to be willing to take the projection. Mm. You have to kind of be willing to put yourself on the chopping block for them to explode onto you. And that's always the, the risk for me is like, and it's based off of my own trauma and my own material, but it's like, okay, I'm, I'm about to risk explosion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's a question I've been asking everybody. Mm -hmm. If you could help me finish it, that would be great. Okay. If you don't like fill in the blank, you probably shouldn't be a therapist. Oh, <laughs> Wow. That's a good one. If you don't I'm proud like, of this one. If you don't like blank. Fill in the blank. You, you probably should, shouldn't be a therapist. Probably shouldn't be a therapist. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. Not like not like hard shouldn't, but you know, you you probably should consider something else. 
I have two answers, and maybe I, maybe I just have two. Two's great. My first is, if you don't like chaos, then you shouldn't be a therapist. Mm. Wow. And then the second one is, if you don't like yourself, mm. you shouldn't be a therapist. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna want some unpacking of both I, of those. Perfect. That would be great. Perfect. Let's start with the chaos one. What do you mean by that? I think chaos is the simmered down juice. Like if we boil things down to its absolute element of mm -hmm. what is actually at the core of something, chaos is the force that shows up in the room. Mm. Chaos is the predecessor to change. Mm. Yeah, disruption, destabilization. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. So you have to, in some ways, kind of like gotta be okay with chaos. That. Yeah in order to be a therapist mm. because those are the forces that you are contending with in that room. Yeah. And when I say you have to like it, you have to find your footing. You have to mm. learn how to dance in that chaos and be okay. Mm. That's really poetic. Makes sense. You know. Well, I have a poetry <laughs> major, so. <laughs> You've got a nice background in it, so it totally yeah, makes yeah, sense. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. And even in modalities that are very, um, very structured, things like CBT or behavioral change-focused therapies, even in hardcore behaviorism, one of the key moments that often occurs is something that's called an extinction burst, mm -hmm. which is basically you've done all of these things to eliminate a certain kind of behavior. And uh, when that behavior is no longer being rewarded, there's this burst behind it of the behavior actually intensifying for a little while before it gets better. Yep. And so that is like a form that that kind of chaos or de destabilization could take, even in a very, what we think of as being like a very check the box, procedurized form of therapy. So it's not like just in somatics in that way. Yeah. 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 So then the second one you said is if you don't like yourself, which, you know, is meaty. So what do you mean by that one? So when I say self in this context, I'm using the capital S self. Mm. the Jungian self, the higher self. And how I think about it, it's it's the you without all the garbage. Mm. It's the you that you can feel into when you're meditating or when you have kind of a spiritual experience. It's the authentic you. It's actually you, one might say. Mm. And I think that is the anchor that you have to hold on to as you are a therapist. Because mm -hmm. as a therapist, you are holding a container. You are holding a space for a person. And if you're in trauma like me, you're holding a space for a person to discover themselves. You're shepherding that person towards their self. And that produces a lot of force for change and transformation. And I don't think you can not be changed yourself mm -hmm. sitting in that container with the other person. Mm. So you have to love who you are at the core because all the versions of you that you think you are are going to be flushed down the toilet and challenged and yeah. thrown out and it's going to be a whole lot of, oh, my God, I thought I was. Oh, no, who am I really? <laughs> Do you speak from some painful personal experience Oh, here? yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. 
as your partner watching you go through graduate school, this was this was my externalized experience of it while it was going on. Yeah, and I think that's a great clarification, a great point there, Elizabeth, about the idea of some kind of an essential self as opposed to all of the presentational aspects of who we are that, you know, sometimes people don't like about themselves, but it's that core part that you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. and it's the self that's, its worthiness comes from the fact it exists. Mm. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on how many people you fix or you help mm -hmm. because you realize none of this is connected to my worth. Mm. That's really beautiful. One of the things that comes up a lot whenever we talk to people about going to graduate school, becoming a therapist, is just the whole notion of research is me search, which is a phrase that I've used on the podcast a bunch. Because people are people are interested in learning about the topics that are pertinent to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, of course, like why wouldn't we be? And man, we've now had five or six friends enter graduate school or or consider some kind of mental healthy profession of one kind or another. And I would say for almost every one of them, everyone that I've had like a real conversation with about it, a big part of their motivation was learning about themselves. Of course, they want to be helpers. They want to work in mental health. At the same time, like self-knowledge is a major motivator for every single person involved. So, hey, maybe that's kind of an answer to the question. If you don't like learning about yourself, you probably shouldn't become a therapist. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, Elizabeth, thanks for doing this with me today. This was really wonderful. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> I loved talking with Elizabeth for this episode. It has been great to see her relationship with the practice of therapy change over time. And she's just become, I think, such a wonderful clinician in how she holds it, how she talks about it, her practice herself. And I've just really loved seeing that as her partner. And my final guest, and I'm really tickled for this one, is my good friend, Taylor Banfield. Taylor is a lovely person, and she is a graduate student at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California. She's had a really interesting path to becoming a therapist that I think would be familiar to a lot of people these days. She actually was working as an engineer before deciding to go back to graduate school. And it was just so fun to talk with Taylor on the podcast about her graduate school experience so far. So I hope you enjoy. So Taylor, thanks for doing this with me today. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah. Are you slightly... Uh paralyzed to be on the podcast? Are you stressed out about it? A Does little it feel bit. Weird? A little bit. Like, not a lot, but a little. <laughs> so Taylor is a longtime friend of mine. We've known each other for nine years, ten years, something like that. It's been a long time. And when I first met you, you were not a graduate student at the Wright Institute, which is what you are now. Mm -hmm. You were, I believe, an engineer. Were you a civil engineer? Is that yes. right? Okay, you did civil engineering. Civil so engineering. how did you go from being an engineer to deciding to go back to graduate school? Yeah. Well, I'll give you the short version yeah. because there is a, a mini, mini vectored <laughs> version. <laughs> using your engineering um, yeah, background. Using my yeah, engineering yeah, yeah. background. I love a metaphor. Yeah, so I think that one part of like how did I end up here pursuing a psychology profession is that I've had a long time interest in it and that's actually not changed probably mm -hmm. since when I met you yeah. um, but my understanding of how I could pursue that profession has mm -hmm. changed a lot and mm -hmm. also my own ability to like be flexible enough to make changes in my life mm -hmm. I think those are the big differences so when I was first starting my undergraduate degree, I just sort of got thrown into engineering. I was like, okay, I think I'm good at this. 
the engineering program at UT was really great at showing you a path from like, here's your degree. Here's how you get a job. Here's how you be mm -hmm. successful. Yeah. And I took a psychology class that I loved, but I didn't get that same sort of guidance. Mm. So I just didn't have a blueprint for like, if I like this, how do I make a career out of it? Yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense. And you decided to do a PsyD program as yes. opposed to a similar program, like a master's level degree, like an MFT or LPCC. I think there are a whole bunch of others depending on where you live, but something equivalent. What made you want to get a doctorate? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit of both circumstance and choice. So <laughs> okay. I definitely wanted a doctorate. I think that I personally just have a hard time saying no to difficult, shiny, <laughs> fun <laughs> things that come with letters. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. like there's definitely that part. Another part is that I actually applied to both MFT programs and PsyD programs. Mm -hmm. And so a little bit of it was just where do I get in? Yeah. Like, will I even have the choice? And from the the research that I was doing and talking to friends, yourself included, about what the difference was mm -hmm. between a PsyD and an MFT, there's a lot of overlap. But there are just like a few more things you can do with a PsyD assessment included. And I just kind of wanted to have all the options. I yeah. had a feeling that I was going to want to have all the options. <laughs> so what was the application process like for you? Um, so I applied during sort of lockdown light of yes. the pandemic. Yeah. So it m is a little bit different than maybe it would have been otherwise. I didn't have to take the GRE, for example. Mm. A lot of schools dropped that requirement because people weren't going in person to test. So that was nice. I mean, it was essays, essentially, and then interviews, which were really nerve wracking. I think the yeah. interview process. <laughs> How many places did you apply? I only applied to two. Wow. Yeah. Well, very brave. I was. <laughs> very brave, very confident or some combination of the two, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think there was a part of me that just figured I was at a place in my life where if neither of them worked out, mm -hmm. I would give it another go in a year. Yeah. Also different programs. I had a whole spreadsheet with like all the information from different programs. And some of them you could apply on a semester basis, like mm -hmm. biannually. Some of them, if they were a trimester or quarter program, you could apply every quarter, essentially. So there were a lot of options. Yeah. And so if it if it didn't work out this round, you could have run it back in some capacity, either at the same places or at different places and just kind of learned more about it. Exactly. Yeah. That makes total sense. Mm -hmm. So when you got to graduate school, mm -hmm. you know, you go from not being a student again to being a student again. It's a pretty sudden change. What was it like going back to school? Just like in period. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, it was really cool. I loved like, so I'm on a trimester schedule and I loved the start of things. I had so much energy, I feel like at the beginning of the year, mm. that energy definitely dwindled by the end. But I loved being in the classroom. I think I've always enjoyed classroom style learning and these classes. So I'm in a cohort model. So you're with the same, I think we have like a class of 60, mm -hmm. but they break you out into maybe classes of 20. So there's a lot of discussion, which I also love. So it's kind of just like two of my happy places for learning, which is like being talked at a little bit and then getting to talk back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's great. And also another part of it that I I think this is kind of unique for Wright, but I'm not totally sure, is that very, very early on in the process, they had you actually sitting with people. As it was like a very early practicum. I remember Elizabeth with CIIS. That was in her last 
year, but I mm-hmm. think that for you, it was like pretty shortly after getting in, right? Yeah, yeah. I actually went to my practicum orientation before my classes started. Wow. So that was my first introduction to this is going to be your life for wow. the next few years. <laughs> yeah. What was that like? Just like sitting with somebody for the first time, particularly maybe not, I, I don't know how you felt, but if it were me, I would feel like I did really have the information that maybe I wanted before doing that. But I don't know what that was like for you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes to all yeah. of that. <laughs> it was really exciting. Yeah. Definitely nerve wracking. It was really interesting to see there were maybe like 12 other people at my practicum site. And we all came in with different levels of experience. Mm-hmm. Some people were like fresh out of their undergrad degree. Some people had like a whole master's in psychology already. So we were all very different. It was interesting to see everyone kind of come into that first session with the same Mm -hmm. amount of nerves. Mm -hmm. And it felt nice to know you weren't alone in that. Mm -hmm. And then it's been really interesting reflecting back now at the end of the year, having done a whole year, academic year, 10 months of sitting with people. And like we all feel so much more confident. It's like really wild to look back. Was there anything that surprised you about what that's actually like? And, you know, your your fiance is a... So is is a therapist and yeah. does this kind of work. So I'm sure that you know you and Matthew had a lot of like conversations about this sort of thing. Uh, you've talked with Elizabeth about it. You have a lot of friends who are therapists. But nonetheless, like the actual practice of sitting with somebody, was there anything that surprised you about it or that was unexpected? So my particular learning curve, and I think that this happens with a lot of new things that I try to do, is I get so focused on what the role I'm supposed to be doing looks like Mm. that in some ways I forget the things that come naturally. So for me, I actually had to kind of re-remember how to just be a human because you sit in a room with someone and it was like, how does a therapist talk instead Uh, of just getting in the room and being like, this is how Taylor talks. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. Mm. That's actually what you want. I love that. Yeah. So so when you first got in, because I'm just trying to to get an image of like what that looks like to somebody because I'm sure that that I think what you're describing is extremely common Mm -hmm. I remember Elizabeth going through some things that were kind of like that where initially she felt like she was being more procedural with people Mm -hmm. and then she got more and more comfortable just like being herself in the room Mm -hmm. but what did that sort of look like for you like what was the difference between then and now yeah um I guess this is more of like as a result of being more natural but the first thing that I think of is that I'm able to listen a lot more Mm. instead of thinking about like, what's the next thing I'm going to say? I think I'm less afraid of silences Mm. really scared me. I think one of my biggest fears starting out was like, what do I do if there's a silence and I have no idea what to say? Yeah. Yeah. Those are some big things. Mm. So if you could go back to yourself, let's say like three months before you started the right program. And you like knew that you're going to go and do it and you're Mm -hmm. committed to it, but you have no real sense of what it actually is going to be like. Is there anything that you would want to tell that person or any advice that you would want to give yourself? I think I would tell that version of me that you're making the right decision, Mm. that you're going to be really pleased with having chosen this path by the end of the year. And to just kind of, I mean, it's a cliche, but trust the process because Mm -hmm. If you trust your professors and your supervisors and we had a lot of support at the right. So like they throw you in with these clients your Mm -hmm. first year, but they don't leave you, you know, to fend for yourself. And so if you just trust all of these experts, essentially, 
you're going to be okay. Did you have to know what kind of therapy you wanted to do with people before you started school? No. Okay. That's good to know. Is it, do you have a leaning with like what's drawn your attention? Do you mean like what theoretical orientation? Okay. Okay. Great. So theoretical orientation or practically if you wanted to do like private practice versus working for, for the state or the county, that's, for example, that's what Matthew does. Again, your fiance. Right. And, uh, or just like have a general sense of how you wanted to be a professional in the space. Or did you go on kind of being like, eh, not sure I'll figure it out while I'm there? Yeah, I started out, the only thing I sort of knew was really private practice, or as you mentioned, Matthew, my fiance, who does crisis intervention. Mm -hmm. And those are essentially two opposite very, ends very different. of yeah. the mental health spectrum. And so I went in thinking, I'll probably be surprised by something that I mm. don't know yet. And if I had to choose right now, I think I would enjoy doing private practice. Yeah. And so I think I've kind of maintained that same mindset where I'm like, if nothing else catches my fancy, I know I'm going to probably enjoy private practice and mm -hmm. that's what I'll do. Assessment is kind of this mystery box for me right now. I have an idea of what it is, but we actually don't take our assessment courses until second year. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of like waiting to unlock that <laughs> and yeah, see cool. see how it sits with me. Totally. So you haven't been doing this for a really long time, but you do know a lot of therapists. <laughs> you do know, you a, know lot a, therapists. a lot of therapists at this point. <laughs> and you've been doing it for a year. So you've mm -hmm. got some experience and you have infinitely more than when you started. Mm -hmm. So I would love your help in helping me complete a sentence that I'm asking everybody to complete as part of this, which is, if you don't like fill in the blank, you probably shouldn't be a therapist. Setting, maintaining, and thinking critically about boundaries. Mm. <laughs> All right, so unpack that for me a little bit. I think that's great, but yeah. unpack that for me a little bit. Um, so I think a big conversation my first year, whether it was in my practicum or in any of my classes, has been how do you maintain boundaries as a therapist? Mm -hmm. And that encompasses a lot of things. So one, it's setting the frame, so to speak, for your clients so that they know what to expect when they come see you. You keep certain things consistent. Mm -hmm. um, the room you see them in, the time you see them in, a certain amount of professionalism. That's kind of like a very basic aspect. But in addition to that, sort of the more you follow what does being a therapist in the wild look like the more you like think that through, the more nuanced and like complex maintaining boundaries become from like something simple like what do you do if you see your client at the grocery mm, store mm -hmm. to like what kind of role do you want to cultivate in your community, whether that means living in a small town or what kind of presence do you want to have on social media? Like there are just so many questions mm. that come up around boundaries that I think I knew there were going to be these conversations, and I didn't realize how many of these conversations we would be having. Is there anything in that that you think has been difficult for you or you think might might be difficult for you in the future as you enter practice with it? Trying to rethink my relationship with social media. Mm. Yeah. I think especially coming from like a hobby that is dance and very like performative yeah. to something that's maybe a little bit more I can't think of quite quite the right word it's not like professional but it's yeah. just like a little bit more yeah you're, you're thoughtful about a, yeah. a certain kind of image mm -hmm. um, as like a healthcare provider 
Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah, that makes sense. If you just think about this whole process that you've been through, a significant career change, entering graduate school, the five-year-ish runway that we're looking at here in terms of the whole process mm-hmm. for three or four from now, depending on how quickly you do it. Is there anything that you wish you hadn't known about it before you'd started? Or anything, looking back over it, where you're like, oh, if somebody's thinking about doing this and starting this process tomorrow, mm-hmm. they should really know this thing? Kind of planning out what your next, say it's five years, say mm-hmm. it's a three-year program, whatever that is, what that looks like. And then I think also being aware of how many maybe students in that program at that school actually graduate on time, mm. how many people stretch it out, what does stretching it out look like, and also sort of the reverse, what would it look like if you wanted to move more quickly through the program? Mm. Because I think that that is information that might not necessarily just be given to you. And something that I've heard a lot from either graduates of the program that I'm in or like professors, TAs, upperclassmen, I guess, so to speak, is that a lot of students wish they'd started thinking about that sooner. Do I want to graduate on time? Do I want to go faster? Do I want to go slower? Mm -hmm. That makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Thanks for taking the time to do this today, Taylor. This was really fun. Absolutely. This was fun. Big thank you to Taylor and big thank you to all of the guests that I had on today's episode. This is our first time doing this kind of a multi-guest format. It was a lot of fun, also a lot of work, but a lot of fun to put it together. And I just hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that uh, somebody out there is listening to this and getting a lot of value out of it for their personal practice of therapy, or just at the very least, was very interested and entertained by listening to so many people who are so experienced in this space, talk about the practice of therapy. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it. If you took a moment to subscribe to it, wherever you're listening to it now on, leave a rating and a positive review if that's available to you. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you could leave a comment asking about something in the episode. All of that really helps us out. And if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon.